0: Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com I'm Sam Manicum, Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray.
1: David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March.
0: Glenn Headstead Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr.
2: Michelle Lamphere. Tiffany Coates.
0: Herbert Schwartz Brett Tax. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Glenn Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. This is, is Spencer Conway, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Catherine Germilak was inspired by Ted Simon's book, Jupiter's Travels. So she bought a motorcycle and headed off on a trip. 30 years later, she still has and still rides that two stroke motorcycle. Today, Catherine's going to give us some stories of her adventure travels. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us, we got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Shall we begin?
2: Shall
0: we begin? Oh, shall? As I'm sure you know by now, if you've listened to our Rider Skills segments here on Adventure Rider Radio, standing on your pegs gives you the best control of your motorcycle on any sort of loose surface, slippery surface, dirt, all that sort of thing. By weighting one peg and unweighting the other, you can lean the bike, you can make the bike turn. There's just so much control you have there by doing it. But here's another tool that's going to take your bike control up a notch and that's installing larger foot pegs because larger foot pegs increase your leverage they make it easier to stand more comfortable on your feet you're more stable there's so many things that happen there IMS Products has a complete line of foot pegs for us adventure motorcyclists. Now, one thing you need to realize before you go out and buy yourself a set of pegs is that foot pegs are not all created equally. For instance, I was talking with somebody a few weeks back and they were showing me the foot pegs they had on their bike. Their foot pegs are wider, just wider, but they were wider both to the front and the back equally. Now, the problem with that is, they found out pretty quick, that it reduced the space between their shifter and the front of the foot peg which meant that they're tilting their foot further at a, at a steeper angle to shift the gears well that doesn't help that actually makes things worse the ims pegs are all designed with the extra width toward the back which is where you want it that makes a huge difference when you're looking at a foot peg so they'll be wider to the back and they'll also be wider out the sides giving you far more control over the bike Drop by their website, have a look at what they've got. It's IMS Products, so www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
2: And for a couple of minutes, because they were shouting at me in Spanish, but I couldn't understand anything, and my visor was down. Uh, I was wondering whether I would die for lack of oxygen, or whether I would die because they they were going to shoot at me. My name is Catherine Germillac. I am French. I teach maritime English to French sailors. I live in Brittany, which is in the west part of France.
0: Catherine, great to talk to you today.
2: Thank you. Nice to to you, too. All the way from Canada.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you said Maritime English. Is that different than just regular English?
2: Oh, yeah. I don't speak Maritime English on my everyday life, actually. For example, in Maritime English, you require assistance. Uh, in normal English, you just need help. There are certain sentences which are set up in order for all sailors to uh, use English as a kind of help language, a common language, whenever they are at sea and they have some problem, so they can send mayday messages uh, to require some assistance wherever they are and whatever the circumstances are. And uh, also we work on all the technical words of uh, what a boat is all about, how it's built, all the different parts on the, the right side and left side, of you a know, port and starboard and all that, yeah.
0: You've been a motorcyclist for how long? Uh,
2: 30 years.
0: 30 years. And you've been riding mainly, which I find incredible, and and really impressively too, I think. You've been riding the same bike. Yeah. What's oh, yeah. The, what's the bike?
2: It's a Yamaha 125 DTMX called Desiree. She's got a little name, yeah.
0: That's a two-stroke, isn't it? Oui.
2: Yes, it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've been riding a two-stroke all this time?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's my first bike. I never had any other. It was, it was love at first sight. Um, when I got the license uh, with a friend, we went to... Well, we had decided to go to several bike shops to get a bike. And the very first shop we went into, I just come in and saw the bike and just pointed out and said, I want that one. And that was it. And it's been going on for 30 years. That's the reason why I went up to the UK last summer. I wanted to celebrate the, the 30th anniversary of Desiree while traveling with it. And um, and I celebrated it while we were at the um, um, Overland magazine meeting in Oxford.
0: It was the book Jupiter's Travels that got you into motorcycling. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Um, I was working in Paris at the time and a friend of mine was a biker uh, it took him about four years to convince me to read the book. First of all, because I had never sat on a motorcycle in my entire life. And I was not particularly interested in bikes anyway. Uh, finally, one long rainy weekend, he gave me the book. And he said, well, just read it. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So at long last, I read the book all through the weekend. And the following week, I decided to go and sit on um, a driving test.
0: Why would you want to read because, the book to begin with? Why is he pushing you to read this book on travel by motorcycle?
2: I don't know. He thought, he thought I would be very interested in all the adventures that Ted Simon went through. And um, um, I don't know. I would never even had a ride on a bike before. Uh, well, remember, it, it took him four years before he finally got to have me reading the book anyway. <laughs> Who is this person? Uh, Philippe Streff is a colleague of mine I've known for a long time. And now he's retired with his wife in the center of France. And he's still very happy to know that I still have the bike these days, actually.
0: So clearly, he knew you better than you knew yourself at that point. I suppose so. Well, I mean, in hindsight, I right? So. I mean, he spent four years yeah. trying to convince you to read the book that sort of changed <laughs> your life.
2: I know. And after that, I always said, well, you have to be careful who you give this book to because it's definitely a life-changing uh, book.
0: It's, it's dangerous <laughs> pushing that on someone. It is because, I mean, obviously, yes. <laughs> that did it for you. Next thing you know, you're riding this motorcycle. <laughs> and, and then what did you do? You, you, because the book was about travel and motorcycles, you bought a bike and then what? You wanted to travel?
2: Uh, yeah, about three weeks after I had the bike and the license, I went to Greece I knew Greece fairly well at the time because I was flying there regularly from Paris because I just love the country. And then I decided to go and drive there, so I drove all the way through France and part of Italy, took a ferry from Ancona to Igoumenitsa in the north of Greece and just toured Greece. And after five weeks, I thought um, I had a wonderful experience. And then uh, I started thinking about, well, uh, if Greece was so easy to go through, why not something a bit bigger? And then I started to think, well, if that Simon did it, uh, why not me?
0: Didn't anyone tell you that, you know, this, this is something you shouldn't do?
2: Oh, of course, everybody, <laughs> uh, ex- including, including this colleague of mine, everybody except for my godmother. She was the only one who at the time told me, go ahead, uh, you're right in doing it. Everybody else thought I was completely crazy. Uh, of course, I had to give up my job. I wasn't sure I could get a job back when I came back. Uh, but what did it actually is that uh, at the time I had a boyfriend and when I first told him that I was thinking about doing this trip, it, I think he did exactly the thing that helped me took my decision. He laughed. <laughs> he laughed for a good five, ten minutes.
0: He's history, right?
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually helped me taking the decision in like, yes, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So within about um, six to eight months, I slowly but surely sold my furnitures and then I gave my resignation because originally I was told that I could take a uh, 11 month sabbatical to do my journey. And I thought very optimistically that one year would be enough for me to tour the, the entire planet. Uh, little did I know at the time that it would actually last for over six years.
0: What year was this? When, when were you planning to leave? Uh, I
2: left in uh, 1988 and I come back in 1994.
0: In 1988, you're, you're not dealing with any internet. How are you finding your information? What, what makes you think that you can just take your bike and go to another continent and ride?
2: Well, nothing made nothing me think otherwise.
0: You just thought that if you want to do it, that's, that's it. You can just do it.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And I did. And um, I find a shipping company to send the bike from Le Havre to Montreal. I took a one-way ticket from Paris to Montreal and there I got the bike after some difficulty from the customs, hence the, the names now. And then I d- just started driving. I had a few contacts. I had um, a family I had met while traveling through Crete a couple of years earlier who was living in Quebec. So they first gave me the address of their daughter in, in Montreal. So I had somebody to stay with right from the word go. And then I had an address of a friend of a friend of mine in in New York uh then from there on, on the way i just met people who send me to other people on the way uh my only family at the time my uncle was living in peru but by the time i got into peru he had uh, he had left and then i had a friend in australia so i told my friend in australia look i'm leaving it's june 1988 if everything's okay i will be with you by christmas which I did, but I only arrived in Australia in, for Christmas in 1993.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you conveniently left out the year of your commitment. <laughs>
2: well, you know, I, I didn't know. I mean, the thing is that I was given opportunity to work on the way. And um, I stayed for a year in Colombia. I had to learn to speak Spanish, to dance salsa, to kind of uh, uh, hide myself when delivering chocolate truffles while they were shooting in the streets of Bogota. I had a lot of things to learn about living in South America. Then I entered Ecuador and thought, well, I stayed one year in Colombia. I'm not only going to stay in Ecuador for a couple of weeks. Instead, I stayed for a couple of years because I found a job there. It took me longer than expected to cross Peru because my papers were stolen and all that. And then Chile took me forever because it's just such a long country to go through. Uh, Patagonia was great as well, but I was there at the beginning of winter, so I couldn't really linger too much in Patagonia. I only stayed there for about three to four weeks. And then I shipped the back to, uh, finally to, from Valparaiso to Australia. So, yeah, I stayed four years altogether in South America, which was absolutely not the plan at the beginning.
0: Did you just say that you had to learn salsa? That was part of fitting in?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) I I haven't heard this before. I didn't know that when you went to South America, you need to learn the language and you need to learn salsa. You're making it really complicated for those who haven't been.
2: Oh, well, I would say salsa is easier to learn than than Spanish anyway. And just as well. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So
0: you're not dropping the requirement for salsa. You're just ensuring that it's easy to learn.
2: Oh, of course, it's easy to learn. I mean, to me, when you go abroad and you learn a language, you also learn to live the way the people live their life in the country. And, of course, everybody was dancing salsa in Colombia. So I started dancing salsa. Yeah. And merengue and all the other things, which is great because uh, years later in Ecuador and here as well in Brittany, I taught uh, salsa for a while.
0: Let's talk about your bike for a minute, a Yamaha DTMX 125. Yeah. This is, as we yeah. said, it's a, it's a two-stroke bike. Describe this mm-hmm. bike.
2: Uh, she's uh, red and white, white tank and red seat. Um, I, can, I can change the spark plug. I know where to put uh, the oil and the petrol. I can put the air in the tire, and that's about it.
0: So has there been a concerted effort over the 30 years to learn mechanics and you're just you're somehow averse to it?
2: No, I wouldn't mind. But each, in South America, especially, each time I was trying to get my tools out to fix something or, or even attempt to fix something, there was always somebody there saying, oh, come on, lady, move away. We're just going to do that for you. So, <laughs> voila, I just never bothered, really.
0: <laughs> well, I, <had> about <laughs> I, I guess if you don't need it, why bother, Right.
2: Exactly. Well, I mean, there were three times I could have really do with some hands. That's when um, uh, I had three punctures in six years. Wow, that's
0: and really the good. First
2: two, uh, yeah, that's really good. The first two were in Canada, actually, in Ontario. Uh, I first had a puncture on the kind of motorway, and I stopped at a truck uh, checking station or something, and they were very happy to fix the tire for me. And a couple of days later, right in, uh, in Toronto, I had another puncture, and I just had the puncture in front of a garage. So I just put the bike in the garage, and I was invited to have dinner with some of the mechanics there, which was quite good fun. And then a few years later, I had a puncture in the middle of Patagonia. And at the time, I was traveling with an English guy who had a massive bike. We always thought it was very funny that uh, whenever I drove, either on ice, on gravel or tarmac, I was always going at a steady uh, 70 k's an hour. And then he looked at me and he looked at the bike and told me, if I don't fix your tire, you're going to spend the entire winter here. And I said, uh, yes. So he fixed the bike and, uh, and the tire for me.
0: Well, you, you had that, a panic fear of punctures, didn't you? I mean, you described it as.
2: There were two things I, I was really fearing. It was uh, lack of petrol, running out of petrol, and having a puncture. So the first sentence I learned when I was in in uh, San Diego, getting my visa for Mexico, was "Where's the next petrol station?" Which I had written on a piece of paper. So each time I was filling my tank, I was pull out, I was pulling out the little piece of paper and have it read by the person who was at the pumps. Uh, except that whenever they were giving me the explanation about the next petrol station i just couldn't get it so it's only when i arrive in uh, once i arrived in colombia i could figure out what they were replying when asking for some more petrol on the way
0: is there separate tanks where you're putting in the two stroke oil and the fuel or are you mixing it
2: oh no it's separate tank i had to put some oil in the tank in patagonia when uh, at some point the uh, the pump for the uh, the oil uh, at some point wasn't working for some reason so I had to fix it back when I went back to uh, Santiago. For so, for, so for quite some time, I had to put the oil directly into the tank. Uh, except that one evening, I, I think I put a bit too much oil into the tank. And uh, the morning after, the bike wouldn't start. So again, I found the biker was kind of to, uh, to clean the carburetor for me. <laughs> so it would work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's quite a toolbox <laughs>
2: Yeah, well <laughs> oh, well, This year actually, funnily enough I mean, as a proof that I don't really need my tools Because I don't know what to do with them I left France last uh, July And completely forgot to, tool, to take all the tools with me anyway So I had no tools at all. So at some point when I was on my way to Oxford, I think I was in New York staying with some friends. After I had been around the UK for quite some time, I finally managed to get some tools to um, adjust the chain because the chain was a bit um, loose by then. But that's about it. I I had nothing. I had I left without any any tools at all. And uh, the bike was fine as usual.
0: Back in 1988, there there was no GPSs like we have now, but, no. but I know that you say that you don't like GPSs. Well, what was your method for getting around then? What were you using for sort of your information channel? How were you finding your way around?
2: Um, guidebooks, first of all. I had uh, the South American Handbook uh, with me when I was in South America, which at the time was the only one book on very, very thin piece of paper. Now I think it's sliced in different parts. You have... Uh, uh, Latin America you have like Mexico and Central America, and then you have South America at the time it's just one book where you had everything on and then um, I just looked at the map and um, looked at places or nice roads which seemed to be interesting to go through and just uh, I just went and I arrived somewhere, looked for a hotel or a, a family house, pension whatever and I just stayed there i didn't I hardly camped in South America except in patagonia
0: and did you get lost a lot?
2: Oh, yeah and at the beginning it was a big panic as well because oh my god I'm, st- I'm, I'm lost again and now it's like oh right I'm lost well big deal and it doesn't worry me anymore it used to but not anymore
0: so now it's part of the adventure it's something that sort of creates things for you
2: yeah absolutely the only thing is that um Last year, no, two years ago, I went to, uh, to Portugal with a bike. Uh, I did a little tour before going to England, well, to Ireland and to England to visit Jackie. And then I took a ferry all the way to Spain and drove down to Portugal. And on my way back, uh, the few times a day I turned my phone on, uh, I got a, a message, a text message from a colleague of mine asking me where I was and just at the time, I was actually lost. So I just texted her back saying, um, I don't know, I'm lost. And then I turned my phone off and I didn't turn it back again for another couple of days. When I got, went back to work, she said, I was in an absolute panic. I didn't know where you were. I said, well, don't worry. I didn't know either, but I was not panicking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Especially nowadays where it seems that everyone's plugged in online all the time, whether they travel or not. <laughs> you know, they no, always know. seem to be connected.
2: I know, but I, I don't want to be connected. I mean, uh, one of the things I love when I was traveling was to gather all my uh, letters, all my mail from either the Alliance Francaise or the main post office in, uh, in a capital city. And then sit at a cafe, at a terrace and just spend the whole afternoon uh, sipping coffee and reading all my letters. And uh, I discovered years later that all the um, the writings, all the letters I sent to my godmother, she had kept them. And she put them in a little bundle. I must admit, a little bundle, because I didn't write much in six years anyway, <laughs> with a little red ribbon. And she kept them preciously because they were very few and far between. <laughs> and now you can't do that because everybody uses email everywhere all the time. And you know exactly what's happening to somebody at the time it's happening, which I... I guess it's nice as well, but you don't have this kind of uh, wondering about, I wonder what he's doing, where he is, and whatever. And uh, when I travel, I do send now through Facebook some uh, pictures about all things I've done and and seen, but not on a daily basis. And uh, I still appreciate the fact that when I'm traveling and I'm somewhere, there's only me who knows where I am, nobody else.
0: It seems like the. I mean, you know, I don't want to go too deep into this. It's something we do talk about on this show, but it, it seems like the the technology. I don't know. It makes communication kind of cheap. There, there was something about the day when you would receive a letter from someone, and you see mm-hmm. their handwriting on the on the front, yes. and you open it up, and I mean, it, it's it's mm-hmm. just gone. That special feeling is gone.
2: I still I still write uh, real letters, snail mail, as I say to mm. uh, to friends of mine, and uh, and I think that. Well, they, they do like it for for the information they get me back, but um, it it of course it takes more time. I mean, a letter to the States, to Canada, or to South America takes forever. Uh, and I actually, we it's already mid-November. I'm gonna have to start writing some of my Christmas letters for friends I do not send mail to um but it's it's very i mean to me it's very precious i'm sorry sometimes to open my mailbox it only finds uh, uh you know bills or things like that or, or yeah. publicity but no no real letters it's very rare nowadays
0: yeah it seems that we've lost yeah. something there unfortunately we can't turn them back the clock it's uh, you can't ignore the technology especially when it comes to communication
2: no, you can't, but you can still make the choice from time to time to write a real letter so, to somebody who, who matters to you. And, you know, the person understands the time you've put in it and the effort you've put in it, you know, by taking time, sitting at your table, writing a letter, posting it, going to the post office, choosing the stamp, and then waiting for time to do its work, i.e. to for the letter to get to the, uh, the destination it's supposed to, to go to. And it's very special. Of course, it's instantaneous now with email and Skype and Facebook and everything. And it's very exciting. But you see that the more we consume this instant information, the more we want instantaneity. And I don't want to sound like an old fart or anything, but it's something I I miss to have this kind of slow communication and and the price that go with it because of the price and the effort that people put into it.
0: Yeah, I, I guess because we sort of come from a, a different area than era, rather than uh, than younger people today. How old are you?
2: Uh, I'm old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you put down, the, don't even ask. And I just figured if I just threw it in there, would you just blurt it out without thinking? Oh, but try, that's, again, that's honey, try again. Honey, try again. <laughs> I'm interested in particular in a little bit of your story here yeah. in Peru. And first of all, you, you mentioned that you're apprehensive about going to Peru. Why?
2: I had spent a year in Colombia. And uh, have you seen the series Narcos?
0: No, I'm not a television watcher.
2: Okay, it's, uh, it's uh, a series about the uh, story of Pablo Escobar you know, the head of the uh, cartel de Medellín of the narcotraficantes in the 80s and 90s in Colombia. Um, I would say I was in Colombia between Series 1 of Narcos, Episode 4 or 5, and Series 2, Episode 6, basically. While they were killing lots of people in the streets of Bogota and Medellín, they killed three candidates to the presidential elections. I was regularly shot at while I was crossing the streets of Bogota And it was an interesting time. Uh, A friend of mine was um, um, a window maker. And at some point, the uh, cartel de Medellin uh, was nicknamed the cartel de los Vidrieros, uh, the window makers cartel. Because at the beginning, there were only um, explosions. There were no people involved in the explosions of buildings. But then they had to replace the doors and windows. But then... Um, At the time in Colombia, for example, you couldn't ride with a helmet on. That was forbidden. You couldn't be two people on a motorcycle, and you couldn't carry a bag. And one time I nearly got killed because I didn't know about those rules yet. So after a year of kind of lots of excitement in Colombia and two years of peace and quiet in Ecuador, crossing Peru with a Shining Pass, uh, still uh, working pretty much on explosion in both uh, Lima, the capital city and the and the, the mountains as well. Uh, it was a bit daunting. So I thought it would be better just to follow the Pan-American Highway and maybe not be by myself by then. Well, with inside it's just as well that my bag was stolen with all my papers and money and everything inside because then I went anyway through the mountains, and it was a wonderful experience, and nothing wrong happened to me.
0: Well, l- let's talk about that incident in particular, and I, I want to sort of dive into it a little bit. You were concerned about crossing Peru. You arranged to meet a couple other motorcyclists?
2: No, I just uh, met them completely by chance. Um, there was this uh, French cyclist whom I'd met in Colombia years uh, years earlier, whom I met again in Ecuador, and he told me about the uh, director of the Alliance Française in the north of uh, Peru, a place where where all travelers, French travelers, were welcomed. So I met this guy and his wife, and one evening at their table, I met, uh, I met two uh, cyclists from France who just come through the uh, Canyon del Pato, but I say, well, I've met those bikers uh, the day earlier, and we decided to travel together. So I'm, I'm afraid this road you are describing, like being wonderful, I won't go through. But I was kind of, oh, too bad I met those bikers because you know now I've committed to travel through the Pan-American Highway with them. So I won't. I will miss this wonderful place those French guys told me about. But then my bike, my bag was stolen, so I went through the adventurous road anyway.
0: <laughs> well, let's look at that incident. You're standing there, where in the yeah. street?
2: Well yeah, we were in the street. Uh, so there were three, the three of us, each with his, his and her, her bike, and just I can't remember what happened. I think we are looking at one of the, this couples' bike, and I just put my bag next to me on the floor, uh, my little backpack with all my belongings inside, and. Um, before we knew it, just somebody came back on a little Muppet and just snatched the bag.
0: Well, the bag you put down, that has all mm. your worldly possessions in it?
2: Uh, apart from my camera, which I had around my neck, there was my passport, my traveler checks, uh, my wallet, my money, my carnet de passage, and uh, and a knife, a, an old Greek knife I had tra- used with me, uh, which I traveled with me for a number of years, yes.
0: And yes. was that a normal thing for you to do to set it down? Or was that sort of a lapse in your security?
2: Uh, I would say bits of bit of both, actually. I mean, I was always very cautious in the first two years I was in South America. But by the time I left Bogota and started to travel further south to reach um, Ecuador, I felt very at ease in South America because I could master the language. I knew the country. And I don't know if you looked at the pictures, but I looked like the locals over there. I'm brunette, I'm fairly tanned, and um, I look like the, the girl from the village next door, which is kind of interesting sometimes in parts of, of Bogota. So I guess I've lowered my guard a bit by thinking that you know, nothing would happen. And I was very pissed off because something happened, which then led me in lots of trouble for a short while. And um, and I was partly responsible for it.
0: So someone comes by, and they, I assume they grab your bag while you're not looking, and then take off. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I remember I could see the guy driving up. I was like, oh no, this is not happening. <sighs> and it's in fact the French uh, biker who jumped on his bike and tried to follow this guy, but just in the small streets of Pura, he just lost them. So I spent a couple of days with the. Um, some of the crew from the French Alliance, Alliance Francaise, looking around town because apparently they knew that's when something was stolen. Sometimes you could get some papers and stuff back in some part of the town where the, the thief used to get rid of stuff. But we couldn't find anything.
0: What did you feel when you're standing there and that bag is going, well, you said you thought, oh, this is not happening. When the bike is gone and you realize that, yes, it's not coming back, what's your feeling?
2: I felt like an idiot. And for about 48 hours, I thought I would um, end the travel right there. And actually, phoned my, I phoned my godmother about three or four times in six years. And that time, I phoned her to say, look, that's what happened. Uh, I'm disgust with it. I'm just coming back. And, you know, slowly but surely, I thought, well, no, I'm not hurt. The bike is here. Traveler checks. I would get back one way or another. Um, so I'm going to continue. And I I did. So I phoned her back to say, no, by the way, I'm not coming back. Everything's okay. I'm just going to go to Peru, cross half of the country, go go to Lima, cross half of uh, Peru without any ID, and that should be fine. And that's what I did.
0: what's the concern if you get caught without ID?
2: Well, I found out about 400 kilometers before arriving in Lima. uh, There was this policeman on the road in the middle of nowhere who waved me down and asked for my papers. So I first said, well, you know, officer, I don't have my papers. I got uh, my papers stolen back in Pura and explained very calmly and politely what happened to me. And then he said what he shouldn't have said. He said, well, I'm going to have to take the bike away from you. And I think that I've never been that rude in my entire life. (laughs) In Spanish, I can do that very well, trust (laughs) me. And, okay, complaining about all the thief, about Peru, starting to put in some words about the French embassy, and he just took one step back and told me, "Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he was not gonna put his hand on my bike, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> he figured he had a firecracker here, and I am not doing this. Just go.
2: Well, you know uh, South American women and and Peruvian women, especially in the mountains are um are, are, they're not very aggressive towards men, I would say they they I don't know how they are in their house, but they're always very polite and quiet and they don't raise their voice uh so I, I guess he was very surprised at my attitude and also because i could say all the right words uh in spanish without any problem he probably wondered for a while whether i was really french or not because that's the first thing i tried to explain you know that I was a poor little tourist who'd been robbed by his uh his, his fellow peruvians but you know i didn't get that i didn't hold that against him blah 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 but then then i just changed my tune actually
0: when he says go, do you sort of have this feeling of, I got to go, I've got to get on my bike and get out of here before he changes his mind?
2: Oh, I just, no, I just put my first gig and thank you, goodbye. And I just went.
0: <laughs> Is that your personality? Is that who you are? Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I do to say she... No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean,
2: I've said you, when you, when you first send me your application form, you know, and you say, well, describe yourself. And it's like, that's why I asked some of my friends to describe me, because I think I thought that would be uh, more honest to have them giving you their opinion of me. And what they say is, is very true. Yeah, when I and I think it's Jackie who put it very nicely when she said you don't pretty up things when you have to say things. And and it's true. I mean, I'm trying to work on it. You know, I don't have to shout like I did to this uh, on this uh, Peruvian um, uh, policeman I don't do that on a daily basis, I must admit. But yeah, when I want something and when I know something's right, I just make sure it happens. Yeah.
0: Where does that come from in your personality?
2: Uh, The fact that I had to fence for myself at a very early age, I suppose, uh, which wasn't very easy at the time. And when you have to deal with life on your own from early time, you just... um, Well, you can either go with the flow and agree with everyone and just try to make your your points and uh, I try to make my points
0: You headed to Lima to get your papers
2: Yeah (laughs) Uh, That was interesting again um, Once I got to Lima I was staying with a friend from this couple I was staying in the north of Lima and uh, my first port of call was the French Embassy obviously Um, but I didn't have money I didn't have enough money in fact to pay for my passport. So without my passport, I couldn't get my travel checks at the American Express agency. And without my travel checks, I couldn't pay to pay for my passport.
0: <laughs> it's so that, I had a bit of
2: a dilemma It's there. that
0: chicken or the egg thing, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> gosh, know, yeah. It's like you need one, you needed bridge financing is really what you needed.
2: Exactly. So there was no way the French embassy would issue me with a passport. So I said, well, what the heck, I'm just going to go to the American Express Agency and I'll try to convince them somehow um, I'd have money and so on to, to pay for the passport. And they were pretty cool about it, actually. Um, they asked me some kind of secret question. I must have answers five years earlier in order for me to make sure I was the person for them to know I was exactly the person I was pretending uh, I was. And they gave me the money, no problem. And then I went back to the embassy <laughs> and threw a scandal saying, come on, I'm a French citizen. You don't trust me. And I go and see and speak to those guys and, and they give me the money and now you can have your money. And it was just, I was just about like $5 short to pay for my passport. So I was really pissed off.
0: And they still wouldn't, didn't want to issue you a passport.
2: Yeah, just because I was short of $5, they wouldn't issue me the passport. They wanted to have the money on the counter before issuing me a, a passport. So, what did you do? Well, that's when I went to the American Express. The American Express, actually, after explaining who I was and a few verifications, they gave me the money. And then with the money, I was able to go back to the French embassy and pay for the passport and get hold of Oh,
0: I didn't understand that. They sent you back for $5? They sent you away and then you had to go, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that the French for you. <laughs> I mean, you you think that they would just say to you, you know, OK, well, you owe us five dollars, you know. I mean.
2: Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, uh, if anything goes wrong with French, uh, with a French citizen, I go to uh, the Belgium embassy or the Canadian embassy. I won't go to the French. I've known my lesson now. <laughs> I pretend my, I'm from Belgium or Switzerland or something.
0: <laughs> so when you when you finally go back with your money, did you get your passport?
2: Yeah, I got my passport and I just hang on uh, in uh, Lima for a couple of days because I also had to get my carnet de passage because my carnet de passage was stolen. And um, because it was stolen, I had to pay another fee to live in France before having another carnet de passage issued. And my godmother lent me the money for about two or three weeks. And when uh, the, they agreed in France that, yeah, the, the Carnet was stolen, but I still had the bike, they reimbursed me from the first fee I had to leave for the Carnet. You know, you have to leave some money in your country uh, if you travel with, uh, with your own bike or car. Um, and then you travel, and when you go back to your country with your vehicle, then they give you the money back. It's like to ensure that you're not selling your car or your motorcycle while you are traveling abroad.
0: So what they had to do is they had to cancel the old one before they issued a That's new right. one.
2: But cancelling the old one didn't mean using the money in order to provide me with a second one. It just meant I had to send another amount of money. They would have then to cancel the first one, reimburse me from the first one, and then that would that would be it. It's all a bit
0: complicated. But anyway. And what they, What were they asking for at that point? Double the the value of the bike?
2: No, no, no. It was the same, uh, the same amount of money, which was still about fifteen thousand francs at the time, which would be uh, oh god in euro um, about eight, nine thousand euros. Don't
0: know. Oh, so quite a bit. I mean, because nowadays oh, yeah. it still yeah. it varies depending on oh, no, the country of No, 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 no,
2: no. no, hold on, hold on. That's too much. Uh, fifteen thousand. Ten, ten, About two to three thousand euros. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, so yeah, basically the probably the value of the bike, I would guess, then it would be a straight value, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's the value of the bike, and the bike at the time was worth ten thousand francs when I got it. I got it new, yeah. Right. And I was going to say, well, sorry if I talk about the bike as her, but to me, she, she's a she and she's got a girl's name anyways.
0: <laughs> when you lost your, your bag uh-huh. and, and your Carnet de Passage, when you lost that, that really sort of, um, you're, you're stuck at that point. If you couldn't get a yeah. new one issued, you would have been out of that money.
2: Exactly. And, um, and also, I wasn't sure I could get the bike outside the country without the Carnet. So, yeah, it was a a big problem. And for some time, I had to think seriously about what I was going to do next.
0: What was the problem with your driver's license?
2: Well, because it was stolen, and the French administration could be, let's say, a bit difficult at times to deal with. (laughs) Let's put it it mildly. Um, They... There was a lady apparently in the French prefecture, in the administration which, which deals with um, uh, driving license. They, they thought over there in France that there was some kind of um, uh, business going on with foreign driving license. And uh, they were very careful about issuing another driving license. So it took me a while before I got the driving license back. And I needed to write a letter. Polite but written with some kind of assertiveness i would say to the head of the department of this um uh permanent license issues in uh, in france and finally i had the license sent to me uh through the uh, diplomatic um valise how do you call that uh diplomatic post from france to lima
0: when you're saying write a letter and send it to them to get them to send you your license, that sounds like a long time. How long did this process take?
2: Oh, uh, writing the letter was not very long uh, and by the letter got by the time the letter got there, it took them three days for me for them to issue my license.
0: So overall, how long were you getting your all your ID and everything back together?
2: Uh, about a month and a half hmm. and by then. By then, I traveled slowly but surely from Pura to, uh, to Lima without any ID or license or anything, yeah.
0: What did you not recover from that? Uh,
2: my Greek knife, which I had for quite a number of years. Uh, a few pictures from my dad, which were in my wallet. Um, and that's, that's it. I mean, after that, uh, money and carne and everything, we're back, yeah. But then, further along in Peru, they also stole my uh, camera.
0: In the same instance or another one?
2: No, it was another one. It was in uh, in Cusco. In the city of Cusco, I went up to visit Machu Picchu. And one day I left my camera in a hotel and it was stolen from the hotel. And by then I was really pissed off at Peru. <laughs> I was fairly happy to, to leave Peru. And when I crossed the border with uh, Chile... I must have looked really miserable because a Chilean uh, custom officer asked me if I was all right, and I say, "Well, you know, in Peru I had this and this happening to me," and he just told me, "Ah, oh, don't worry, we'll we'll take care of you in Chile," and the, and they did. I had six wonderful months all through uh, all through Chile and Argentina.
0: Looking back, what did you learn from that incident?
2: This incident, or, or no, the, the whole, incident
0: uh, with the, the getting your bag stolen, having trouble getting all your ID back, the whole thing. What, what was? What just sort of come out of it and learn, or did you?
2: Oh, never, never give up. No matter what, never give up. Um, I know I've been in kind of sad and difficult situation before, but I definitely still got the uh, the nerves to get over it and find a solution. I'm, I'm a solution finder, basically. That's did, what I always say on a daily basis. There are problems, but apart from that, there's no problem without a solution.
0: Did that change the way you traveled after that?
2: Oh, yeah. I was far more relaxed after that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, there's wind. I'm on the floor. Oh, well, no big deal. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just about the way I, I traveled, just about a lot of things, yeah.
0: And you said at one point someone uh, drew a gun on you?
2: Oh, we oui. that was in Colombia, yeah. What was uh-huh. that about? Um, it was at the very beginning I was in Colombia. I didn't know at the time the rules about not wearing a helmet, uh, not wearing a, not carrying a, a bag, and uh, being only one person on, on the bike. At the time, in the streets of Bogota and Medellin particularly, Uh, There were lots of sicarios driving on on motorcycles similar to mine. There's a lot of one to five uh, bikes going around in South America at the time, in Colombia anyway. And usually the driver was driving along and there was somebody at the back with a machine gun killing whoever they were supposed to kill. And that's why the law at the time forbade everybody to carry a helmet and be two people on a bus cycle. And I didn't, I didn't know that. So at some point, I was coming back towards the city center of Bogota. And I came to a big crossroads. And remember, I learned to drive in Paris. So zooming around cars and, motor, and bikes and, and uh, buses, I know how to do that. And, um so I could see that the red was green, but the traffic came to a stop. I didn't know why, so I just found my way to the front of the of the traffic lane, and there was this massive crossroad, and nobody there. so I just uh, go, "Oh, great, I'm just gonna go," except that I hadn't seen there was a car coming to my left with policemen on motorcycles dressed in yellow, and that's bodyguard policemen in front and at the back of the car. And the second car stopped and there were four guys armed with machine gun pointed at me. And then I just went okay, neutral, hands up in the air. In in those kind of situations you don't think you don't ask what you're supposed to do. It just comes very naturally, which is kind of scary actually. And for a couple of minutes because they were shouting at me in Spanish but I couldn't understand anything and my visor was down, uh, I was wondering whether I would die uh, for lack lack of oxygen, because I couldn't breathe, or whether I would die because they were going to shoot at me. And it was a a long few minutes, I must admit. And then finally, they went back into the car and drove off. And I was still in the middle of the crossroad with my hand in the air when the traffic started zooming around me and... uh, and I went back to my friends I was staying with in Bogota and explained to them what had happened. And they just said nothing, but they poured out a big bottle of Aguardiente, which is a local alcohol there, and started giving me a couple of drinks. Because that by then I started shaking and realized what had happened. And that's when it told me, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you. You're not supposed to <laughs> cross. If you see policemen in yellow on the bike, that means they are bodyguard. That means they are somebody very important in the car they were guarding. And you are supposed to stay well clear of it. And they told me, oh, but don't worry. The good thing is that they got just as scared as you were. So, yeah, well, yeah, probably. But they were <laughs> the, the one uh, holding the gun, though. So after that, each time I saw policemen in yellow on the bike, I just stopped. And, I just, and at the time, I, I, after that, I never wore a helmet. Which kind of kind of funny, because there were not that many girls riding motorcycles in Bogota in the early '90s, and sometimes I was crossing the street and the traffic just stopped just looking at me <laughs> because my hair was long, I was like, "Who is that?" <laughs> and because there were so few women driving bikes at the time, I remember arriving once in a tiny little village, and seeing. And by then I was using the, the helmet, because it was forbidden in big city to wear a helmet, but on the road it was not a problem, and I remember arriving in a tiny village in the south of Colombia, and seeing this little boy running up to me, and when I took off my helmet, I could see his eyes, you know, enormous looking at me, and I told him in Spanish, well, what's the problem? You've never seen a girl on a motorbike? And he looked at me and shook his head saying, no. (laughs) (laughs) So that was was funny. (laughs) And uh, a funny thing as well happened in Colombia. I was um, in the south of the country and uh, I was, um, I can't remember the name of the site. There was some uh, archeological site I wanted to travel, to visit. And uh, in the village in the evening, I went for a walk and something to it. And I sat at the table for coffee or something. And uh, there was this guy, there was a group of young boys you know, bragging about their new bikes. And I was looking at the bike. It was very similar to mine. And the guy was kind of agitating his his uh, keys underneath my nose. He ah, you'd like to try it, wouldn't you? You'd like to try it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to. And he was like, oh, okay, go ahead. Absolutely certain. I would say, oh, no, sorry, I don't know how to do it said i took the key jumped on the bike, and drove off went around for a couple of spin and came back and his friends were killing themselves laughing while he was so pale i was like you know some girls know how to ride a bike (laughs) yeah well i guess now it wouldn't happen because i suppose there are more women just as well who drive bikes but i've had this um kind of mockery from men about driving bikes straight from when I, begin, uh, I began driving bikes in France and uh, people would not believe that I would drive the, the GTMX all the way from France to Greece while I saw absolutely no reason why I couldn't do it
0: You describe that bike as your longest love affair and, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to ask you about your love life but I'm just wondering why, why do you oh, no, love this why do you love the bike so much?
2: Uh, because we've been through so many things together. She got stolen when I was living in Edinburgh. And the night she got stolen, I thought my heart was going to stop, actually. Um, but I made sure I got it back. I contacted the local newspaper and the uh, radio. I had an interview on the radio. I had a few uh, prints in the local newspaper explaining what I had done with the bag and why it meant so much with me, although it's just a, a part of... Uh, of screws and metal to most people, but, uh, it's, it's dear to me because she's put me, I mean, she took me to so many wonderful places and vice versa. And, uh, yes, I'm, I'm very emotional about this bike.
0: What have you been doing for traveling since? Are you still going out and riding your bike to places?
2: Yeah, well, uh, well, this summer I went, um, all the way to Scotland and back, uh, for about, uh, seven, eight, seven and a half weeks, Last year, for the first time in 30 years, I decided to travel through France. So I crossed the whole country diagonally from Brittany to the southeast of France and went to Corsica. I had a wonderful time in Corsica, so I was on the road for about six and a half weeks as well. And two years ago, I went from uh, Brittany via Ireland and England to uh, Portugal. I wasn't able to use the bike for a few years because I had a bit of a, of a foot problem, but now it's back to normal, thanks to a friend of mine who actually fitted the bike with uh, uh, a double uh, gift gear selector, a bit like on a Harley Davidson, actually, uh, because with a single selector, it hurted my foot right where it was a bit uh, a bit weak. So now she's got a bit of a funny look with this uh, double selector system, but um, it so worked you don't have right. to move
0: your toe underneath anymore. You just exactly. lift up. Mm. Exactly, yeah.
2: Exactly. That's brilliant. So, yeah, and was, uh, it, it's a friend of mine. She had the idea when I told her, look, I can't use a bike because it, it hurts. She said, oh, well, there's no problem. We, we found a solution and she uh, welded something on the bike and now it's um, it's wonderful again.
0: Where do you go next?
1: Oh, I don't know.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I left in last July to go to England and I think I took the decision towards the... 20th of June or something like that. So I have no idea when I'm going to go next.
0: You're putting a, a book together?
2: Ah, uh, there were a one million dollar question. Uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I have started a few years ago prior to leaving Scotland to come, when I came back to France. I found it very, um, oh, I don't know, the term might sound a bit strong, but pretty indecent to write.
0: Indecent.
2: Uh, yeah, because it's, well, you have to imagine it's six years of my life. And I started writing, I've done quite a, a good part of the writing so far. And uh, Derek actually asked me to write a whole article about the whole journey, which I'm slowly but surely putting together. Um, but, you know, I would not, and I do not write just for saying, for the sake of saying, oh, I went from A to B with this bike and it was great fun or the bike broke down or anything. First of all, because she didn't really broke down. And it's most it's mostly a matter of saying what my feelings were when I was traveling, who the people were, uh, the people I met. Some people, most of those people I'm still in touch with, uh, some people have died since. And I remember writing a few parts and having to go to bed and sleep it over for two hours before going back to life again, because it's emotionally really draining to put your life on paper. That's what I found anyway. And because if I was to write something, which I think I'll manage to do it in the end, because everybody asks me to, or at least English speakers do, I mean, the French, they can't be bothered with it anyway. But um, it would be uh, probably a very excruciating experience. Interesting, certainly, but very hard to complete. But I think now, I mean I've been back for over 20 years so it would be easier to take some step back and look at it in a more kind of quiet and uh restful way. I think there were too much emotion when I came back from my travels to uh, to write sweat away about it. And um uh, I don't I don't think it's a, it's an easy exercise to do.
0: You already mentioned about Ted Simon's book Jupiter's Travels and how it influenced you to go on this trip. But you, you actually got a, a chance to meet Ted Simon at one point. Can you tell us that story?
2: Um, I was in San Francisco, and I met a group of girls named uh, Women on Wheels at the time. And one of them told me about a photographer who was about to do a book about women and motorcycle. So I went and met uh, Chuck West, who is a photographer. He's retired now. And um, while he was taking pictures of the bike and I, we just talked about how I came to biking. And when I mentioned Ted Simon, he said, oh, well, you know, I think this guy is living in the the north of California. And I think I could get his phone number for you. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, right. What am I supposed to say to the man? Oh, hi, my name is Catherine. I'm traveling around the world and it's all your fault. And he said, well, why not? So he gave me the Ted Simon's phone number. And after a few days of, you know, wondering whether I should do do it or not, I just phoned him up. And that's exactly what I said. I said, well, hi, my name is Catherine. I'm French. I'm traveling on a 125. And it's all your fault. And he said, uh, OK, let's meet for dinner. So we met up in Chinatown. It was uh, in 89. He had been back since 96 or '7. I think it's generally. he took off in 73 up to 77, I think and uh so, a good ten years after he came back from his own journey, and um we had a nice chat and uh he never said at any point that uh you know it was silly to to do it or to go. He never tried to change my mind he's just he was just a bit surprised that I'd chosen such a small bike, and then I told him, well, look at me, I'm just five foot three something or four, I don't know um so the bike is just perfectly uh, suited for me, so that was a good um. A good surprise in the journey. I was kind of meeting my hero at the time, and um, and little did I know that over the years we would uh, stay in touch. And I would uh, I would visit visit him in in the south of France. Well, he visited me once in Brittany, and also in the south of France when I lived for a year in in Avignon. So we've been in touch for over 20 years. Well, oh, nearly 30 years. Oh my God. <laughs> Apart from meeting Ted, it's uh, meeting all the people I, I came across on the road and seeing how welcoming people are. Uh, imagine I was, I was six years on my own and um, nothing really nasty happened to me. I mean, okay, I got robbed in Peru, partly my fault, but I mean, um, I've been really looked after by most of the people I met. And what really struck me when I was traveling and I said that in an interview on the, on the Chilean television, was the, uh, the kindness of strangers. People who meet you who have no reason to take you on board and to help you and to welcome you for the night or give you a hand because you're in trouble or anything or the weather is nasty and they give you some shelter. And uh, everywhere from uh, Montreal to Uchuaia, all around Australia, uh, I've been really, really well looked after by complete strangers. And lots of people like that have been really, really kind and really helpful. And it's a good thing, especially nowadays when you hear so many horrible things about what people do to each other, whether you are from the same nationality or not. And and I would say that on the whole, um, People in the world is far better than one could uh, believe when you listen to the news on a daily basis.
0: When I interviewed Ted Simon, one of the things that he said was that that trip that he did that he wrote the book Jupiter's Travels about it gave him confidence it it, is he said he came back a completely different person it it gave him the confidence and I guess from you know being on your own dealing with things and also maybe understanding and I think this was sort of where he was leading was understanding what people in the world are really like what did you get from it
2: well a better knowledge of the planet I'm living on basically Um, but on the other hand it The planet lost a bit of its mystery. I remember before traveling, when I was thinking about uh, South America and Australia, they were just names on the map and cities on the maps. Now, when I look at these maps, I see faces and stories and people from all different backgrounds. Uh, People whose common link is is me, basically, because I went from one to the other. People who have nothing to do with one another, who come from completely different. Uh, social spectrum and everything and it's good to know that because you are on your own you have to go and talk to people otherwise the journey is not worth it I mean I mean that's my opinion and uh, and being alone and coming across so many different people and having the chance to see how they were living to understand how the, their, the country they lived in worked uh, how their culture goes about. Because when you learn a language, to me, you don't learn just words and, and grammar rules. You learn a whole way of thinking, of laughing, of looking at life and everything. And that definitely made me richer for everything I've gathered on the way. All the, this, these lives, I kind of took along parts of it, and most of them I still carry to these days because I'm still either seeing or talking to those those people. It's It's wonderful. I'm definitely... Um I always say that I have no family, none whatsoever, but I'm I'm absolutely a millionaire, a billionaire even when it comes to friends. And I'm very lucky in that respect.
0: Catherine, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Catherine Germlac from her home in France. Stay with us, we got more coming up. Hey, if you're looking to carry some more fuel on your bike and you don't want to worry about mounting a spare can on there or maybe trying to keep it strapped on, and some people aren't so successful with that. How many times you heard of people losing that? Um, but the, the thing you should be looking at is Camel Tank. Camel ADV products has auxiliary gas tanks that fit into existing spaces on your bike. So you're, you're not replacing your stock tank. You keep that stock look. Everything looks fine. You, you know, your paint on your tank untouched completely. The Camel Tank, it's it kind of blends in with a bike because they're made of black plastic. And uh, actually, go by their website. Look at the photos on the website. It'll sort of give you a better idea. www.camel-adv.com uh, They blend in really nicely and you, you hardly notice the tank. But here's the thing. You don't have to use it if you don't want to. Now, this is key because you don't need all that extra weight of a full massive gas tank if you're only riding short distances around town, etc. So you just fill up your normal tank as you normally would when you want longer range more fuel on your bike you just open up the cap of your camel auxiliary tank you fill it up and now the cool thing is it draws from the auxiliary tank first automatically you do nothing you don't have to worry about it it draws out of the, the auxiliary tank into the main tank and it burns through that way it doesn't use a pump it's designed to work on vacuum you have to drop by their website to see the details on it but this is a great solution for carrying more fuel on your bike. Triple W. Camel hyphen ADV.com. And, and of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Have you ever heard of the Cousin Jeremy suit? Yeah, well, neither did I until I spot it in Arrow Stitch Fall 2016 supplement catalog, which, by the way, you can download online at their website, triple forward slash ARR. And don't forget that. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But in any case, this Cousin Jeremy suit, it's not textile, and it's not leather. It's waxed cotton. its It looks pretty cool. So if you're into that sort of thing, that the wax cotton look, it's, it's got a whole sort of rugged, outdoorsy look to it. Um, bunch of pockets on it, etc. Check it out. Look at it. It's in their catalog. Remember that AeroStitch has been around for 33 years, designing, making, and selling equipment that makes riding anywhere in all weather safer, easier, and more comfortable. And... They've got a, a, a guarantee on if you try one of their Arrow Stitch One Piece R3 or Road Crafter suits for one month and you're not riding it more than you did before you received it, you can send it back for a full refund. No questions asked. So obviously they're very confident that you're going to be riding more just from that suit. You can use the code ARR when you're purchasing, and that's going to get you 10% off your first purchase or free shipping on your next order if you're an existing customer. www.arostitch.com forward slash ARR. And if you haven't already got their catalog, like I said, go to their website, download it online, or request the paper version, have it mailed out to you. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The Good Adventure Company was started in 2015 by J.J. Lewis. Now, J.J. says the reason he started it was to build a a machine to raise money for charities and, and basically to make the world a better place to live and ride. And they do that by selling products and guided trips to adventure motorcyclists and taking the profits from those sales and using them to fund charities. And one of the trips they do is uh, a Copper Canyon trip, which takes them into Mexico. And through that trip, they raise money to help a school there in Batopilos uh, buy equipment and other things to improve the school for the children that go there. They've got another trip coming up for this Copper Canyon that's going to run in March. And that's what I'm going to talk to JJ about. JJ, welcome back. Great to have you on again.
1: Thanks, Jim. It's wonderful to be back on the show.
0: Now, these Copper Canyon trips, you've done a few of them already. Um, as a matter of fact, I think you just came back from one.
1: Yeah, we did a trip in November.
0: Okay, so let's kick things off with you telling us how the trip went that you just went on. Trying to give us an idea of what the Copper Canyon trip's about.
1: You know, it was it was a challenge. Uh, you know, each each adventure trip down to the Copper Canyon demands a lot of flexibility um, and a lot of positive attitude, and uh, you know, we had a really fun trip. And uh, what we really discovered in, down there were some world-class uh, asphalt tarmac roads that we hadn't uh, really uh, explored before. I mean, we've we've really stuck uh, majority to uh, you know the expert-only off-road, uh, but we took a chance and and explored some of the tarmac, especially the road. Uh, that goes down to Batopilas, which, which I think you know mimics Stelvio Pass or something like that. It uh, definitely a European pass that that blows your mind. The switchbacks, um, everybody who did that road, we were just hooting and hollering, and it was it was the greatest amount of fun. Uh, probably one of the the highlights of the trip in terms of riding.
0: Well, let's talk about what you're doing with this. Why do you run these trips?
1: We you know we want to give adventure riders and an ultimate riding experience, you know, you know, sort of akin to like an outward bound experience uh, where it's a true adventure. We don't do hand holding trips. People will find themselves in uncomfortable situations at times, which just makes it all part of the adventure. So we do that, but we also do that to, to do good in the world. That's why we call ourselves the good adventure company. Um, We provide great adventures, but we do good while we do that. And one of the big, uh, places of support that good adventure is involved in right now is the school down in Batapilas. So, uh, we've been really involved in fundraising for that school, helping those children. And, uh, when we were in there, uh, November, we had a wonderful experience, Jim, we were down there, we had breakfast and, uh, You know, we told them we would be at the school, you know, uh, a little bit later that morning. And when we came to the school, all the kids were sitting in bleachers, grade by grade, and there were seats of honor uh, in the middle of the courtyard. And these children gave us this marvelous song and dance and were, you know, made up in costumes and regalia. It absolutely blew my mind. And 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 part of they were saying thank you because as i mentioned kind of before you know they have had these these aging classrooms and you know just a small token but a significant financial token but a, you know a small gesture of you know taking these old blackboards that were falling apart that they could only use chalk on and replacing every classroom with a brand new one and brand new markers, as well as making like a a movie room for the kids using those uh, whiteboards as a backdrop. And the kids were just overwhelmed with gratitude. And and I, of course, was, I mean, it was one of the actually, I think one of the highlights of my life, actually, to see and be able to just receive something that I didn't expect, um, but, but to be involved in something that Um, helps kids and, and changes lives. And each rider that was sitting in those chairs said that was probably the best part of their trip. So when we go down to the Copper Canyon, we will be able to visit the school and riders will be able to see, you know, the Good Adventure Company is not about making a huge profit. It's about making a difference in the world. And they'll be able to see, hey, you know, my money is, you know, I'm going on this great adventure. I'm staying in these wonderful places, but I'm also helping support something that's really meaningful.
0: And that's the whole idea of it, isn't it? That's why you set it up originally is uh, so that you can raise money for causes like that.
1: Yeah. And and it's, it's, it's working and, uh, you know, the site is, is taken off. We're you know, selling a lot of soft luggage and we're booking a lot of trips. We had a really successful trip, the best of the back country last August in Utah and Colorado. And, uh, you know, this March four through eleven. We will be staging in Benson, Arizona, in a secure base camp there. Then we will be traveling to Saharipa and to Creel, which uh, those two days are just the most fantastic days of twisty tarmac that you've ever ridden. And uh, you are in Mexico, so you do have the random hazard, of course, that suddenly arises. But the, uh, the twisty roads, it's, they're intoxicatingly twisty, Jim. And so the first two days are just marvelous, twisty roads. And the third day, um, you know, we have two groups on this trip. We have a high intermediate to expert group that's going to focus more on off-road. And then we have the intermediate group that's going to be focusing more on the twisty tarmac and, you know, gravel and dirt roads. We're not going to get into really hairy, um, you know, having to winch you out possibly of, of these, these roads that we're going on on the expert route. So that night in Batapelas, we were renting out a full hotel. Um, the second day, the intermediate group in the canyon is, is going to be climbing out of these marvelous twisty roads and then spending the whole day on just big sweepers and these roads that sort of uh, hug the rim of the Copper Canyon, while the expert group is going to be climbing up out of the canyon on some really challenging uh, dirt roads and, and um and, uh, and then we will, we will go down into Eureka and uh, we'll end up that night, each uh, the intermediate group and the expert group rendezvousing in a village called Sarakawi where we have a whole hotel booked already. And uh, it's just top shelf accommodations. And the last three days are, are marvelous as well, um, a mix of, of dirt and tarmac. We'll stop in Cheney Pass for a night. And then uh, one of the highlights of the trip, is staying at a place called Hacienda de los Santos in Alamos, Mexico, which is a, you know, they call it a a Pueblo Magico. And it really is. It's a marvelous town, an old silver town, a colonial town, uh, just with marvelous architecture. And this hotel is, if I say top shelf, I can't mention it enough. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Uh, and uh, so, folks, we have we have that all rented out, and then the final night of celebration is going to be on the Sea of Cortez at a hotel in San Carlos, and and the next day, of course, is traveling back to Benson. Uh, but I've got marvelous accommodations booked. I've got excellent routes planned for both high intermediate and expert riders, as well as intermediate riders. Uh, this this trip is sort of the hallmark trip of the Good Adventure Company, and. Uh, i'm really excited to to get folks on board with it and it's for a good cause
0: so what is it about the copper canyon that makes it such a great place to ride
1: well it's 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 a challenge it's a dangerous place i would say um if you go there alone and i've been there alone before you you have a sense of anxiety because you are in the middle of mexico and things are different down there um you know law enforcement is a little bit different but as I said before, the Good Adventure Company we're known down there. So when we go down there, the good guys and the bad guys know that we're coming, and uh, they know the good work that we do, and so they just they just leave us alone. They don't ask us where we're going or stop us. They wave, and as we did last year, we've invited them to bring their children out. So we have our tank bags full of candy, and we stop, and you know, and meet these people, and and meet the kids put the kids on the bike everyone has a really marvelous experience so it it gives you this um sense uh, like no other place because you know you are you are in the middle of nowhere basically and and the 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 dirt routes are even more remote uh, everybody has to work together to sort of get through some of the obstacles on the expert route and so it's it's a beautiful place it's it's adventure riding at its finest. It's uh, a cultural experience that uh, most people will never have um, that we're offering. And we know the people in the villages, so it's a lot of fun to you know go to the restaurant and they know how many people are coming and the placemats are set and, and they, they, the food is, is amazing as well. So it's just a rich experience all the way around.
0: So do you have a special deal for people that are booking early?
1: I do. If folks book before Christmas and they mention that they were referred specifically by Adventure Rider Radio, I will give you 10% off this trip.
0: Okay. And if someone's considering going on this trip, how do they do it?
1: Yep. Contact me, um, you know, through the website at good-adv.com and, uh, You know, definitely I have to talk to you first to kind of gauge your riding experience um, and and make sure that this is the right trip for you. And then we go from there. Um, And, uh, yeah, so folks visit our website and then get more information.
0: Well, that was J.J. Lewis um, from Colorado, a good adventure company. If you want to find out more about the trip, drop by their website, good-adv.com. And, of course, that link will be in our show notes. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American made, heavy duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to you the listener and of course our producer elizabeth martin if you heard last week if you didn't hear last week's show you got to go back and listen to that episode it's the first time you've ever heard elizabeth on the show you've heard her voice she really exists it's kind of cool anyway we're on facebook please drop by our facebook page like us on facebook and don't forget, we've got another show called ARR Raw. The November episode just went out, I think, last week it was. Um, all great fun, roundtable talks. you got to subscribe to that separately. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can look at the Raw thing. And if you can, click on the Donate button and help us out by sending us the donation. Anything $10 or more, we'll get you a sticker sent back at you, and it sort of goes up from there. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. See you next week.
2: I'm Heather Ellis and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.